questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad you're here. Today, we have, I think, nine questions total. We cover a whole gamut. Um, Like I had mentioned last week and potentially the week before, we're not going to do the themed podcast like I had said months before. We have one more themed podcast about OCD that will come out. I'll ask for your questions. I believe it's like in two weeks or so. So other than that, that's the final one that someone had asked for specifically. And like I said um, last week, some people had wanted some specific themed podcasts and I had said that I would do it. And therefore, even though we're not technically doing them anymore, I wanted to honor the fact that I had told them we would do those specific topics. And so I've just been rolling those out little by little and we only have one more left. So if you have any questions that you want answered, feel free to ask them any Sunday. I ask for them on the community tab of my podcast channel over on YouTube and you can put in your question and I pick the one with the most thumbs ups. And then I randomly pick one or two. Just, I just, honestly, you guys, this is what I do. I'm in the comments. I scroll and where it stops, I pick one within that screen. There's like two or three that it shows. And I just pick one and add it to my list. So without further ado, let's get into those amazing questions. And the first question says, Hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, there are a lot of questions asked by people who were abused by their siblings when they were younger. But what if I was the abuser? It's been over 15 years since, but I was put in charge of watching my special needs sister. We're only 16 months apart a lot of the time, and I used violence to get her to listen. I understand that I was probably too young to be put in that situation, and my parents were too neglectful to understand that putting a 12 to 16-year-old in charge of a high-need sibling um, a lot was probably not the most responsible thing. She lives in a group home now, but is happy to see me when I come home to visit. I live across the country. And we get along well as adults, but I feel so terribly guilty for what I did when we were kids. I feel I can't make a meaningful apology that counts because she wouldn't really understand it anyway. I never had a consequence for my actions back then, and I feel that I am permanently tainted from my actions. I try to be the best person I can be now, but I can't get over the feeling of being intrinsically evil for hurting someone who didn't have the mental capacity to understand in the first place. I want to feel absolved from this somehow and make amends somehow, but I also feel like maybe I don't deserve it either way. Do you have any suggestions moving forward? Yes, I have a lot of thoughts. And my first thought is inner child work. Because something I think that we're missing here is an understanding or an ability to remember what you were like at that 12 to 16 year old range. Often we forget as adults how emotionally, I don't know, like how we lacked emotional intelligence, how limited our resources were, our inability to make choices for ourselves or to feel independent and the urge to want that independence, especially in that range. I feel like our early teen years, probably from like 12 to 18 is when we just so desperately want to be on our own, but we just aren't able yet for many reasons. Um, But also one just being the fact that we are so young and we still have school to go through and are, you know, technically, legally, we're not an adult. There's a lot of other societal and emotional kind of caps placed on us that don't allow us to be an adult or be fully independent. Um, so I want you to be able to get back in touch with yourself at that age, because I think you're forgetting what it was like. And I have a feeling that the 
and I'm not condoning your behavior, by the way, we'll get into that. But I have a feeling that the anger you maybe felt towards your sister could have been one of two it, it could it could have come from one of two places. The first being the fact that you were probably resentful because you were put in charge. And like you said, you're is probably not the most responsible things. Your your parents were probably very neglectful because you aren't old enough to really care for I mean, technically maybe, but I don't know her full, you know, swath of needs. And to do that to their their older child all the time, I think is really irresponsible. And you're I would feel kind of taken advantage of myself if I was you at that age, right? So I think there's some resentment there built over really the fact that your parents did that to you. Secondly, when a child has another sibling that has higher needs than them, the fully functioning, not need-based child, meaning you, the one that didn't have any special needs, tend to feel even more neglected because the other child just needed more in just basic like necessity, right? We think of like the logistics of being a parent and having a child. You didn't need as much as your younger sister did. And therefore you were arguably neglected in some way. I actually, um, not to share too much about myself, but my brother is older than me, but he had a cleft lip and palate growing up. I mean, he has it still, but like it was, it required some speech therapy and different things for him because Obviously, he was born, you know, with, if you don't know what a cleft lip and palate is, you can look it up. Um, But it required a little extra attention from my mom and she would read to him more and read with him. To this day, he's still very, very much an avid reader, reader. And I, as a little kid, felt very ignored, like I wanted more attention. And there's some letters I wrote to my mom that she kept that like hurt her feelings so much from me asking for more attention. And I think that fed into part of like my type A and wanting to get all good grades and be the perfect kid, um, which I think led to kind of part of my anxiety. But I have actually connected with a lot of my other girlfriends in my life, like my closest friends, because they had a very similar situation where their other siblings needed more attention than they did. And therefore, you know, I don't know, we, we, we kind of connected over it. And I think there is a, there's a component of that. And that can place you in what we would call like the hero child role, where you feel like you're the only one that can do it for the family, like be the good kid. There can be a lot of pressure placed on you. I I bring all of that up not to share my own BS because I've worked on that in therapy. Don't worry. My brother and I have a lovely relationship and you know things have been repaired over the years. However, it doesn't change. That's not minimizing or invalidating younger Katie who felt like she needed more attention, right? And I want you to be able to validate yourself that it possibly could come from that place where you didn't get the attention that you needed. Now, I'm not saying all of this, again, to condone your behavior, to say violence toward a sibling's okay when you feel slighted or like you're not getting attention. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that we need to kind of understand the full breadth of what was going on in order to heal from it. And doing some of that inner child work can not only allow you to feel for your younger sister and to better understand from an adult perspective what that must have been like for her, but also to understand the pain and maybe neglect that younger you also was going through and how maybe trapped you felt. And I think the thing about healing is we often think that one person's right right, and one person's wrong. And that once we figure that out, we can move past it and forgive whoever needs to be forgiven or whatever. That's not always the case. Sometimes when we heal and 
move past something, it's because we can understand the situation and we can actually hold both things. We can hold and accept the fact that I treated my sister in a way that I, I wish I hadn't. I can't forgive myself for it. I feel so guilty, right? And also, I can have compassion for younger me who felt very trapped, very neglected, and very resentful for the being placed in that position, right? And we can hold both of these things at the same time. And that's going to take, you know, some work and therapy and some compassionate understanding for younger us. But I want you to know those both of those things can exist simultaneously. Sometimes we have difficulty allowing for what we would see as maybe, I don't know, like like one weeds out the other or doesn't allow the other to exist. And I'm here to tell you that they both can exist. I hope that makes sense. Um, So anyways, so there's that component. And then another part that I want to talk about is the fact that even if you don't think your sister has the mental capacity to understand, that's you making an assumption. And again, I don't know, but I think an apology still goes a long way, not only for her to hear it, even if we don't, you know, I don't want you to make any assumptions about what she can understand or not, because only she knows, right? And then I also think it could be helpful and healing for you. But I think all of this is going to have to take place because it's not as simple as an apology because you, like you're saying, you can't even let yourself off the hook for it. You're like, you're still beating yourself up all the time about like for something you did when you were younger. And that's why that inner child work is going to be key because we have to go back to teen you and understand her perspective. Otherwise we're just shaming and blaming. And we have to understand why that happened and what took place. Not again, not so that we can condone it, but so that we can at least validate it and understand it. And then I believe, and only then we're going to be able to apologize to our sister in a way that feels good for us and the best we can offer to her, hoping that she can understand. And then we can allow ourselves to move forward. We can't go back in time and change things, but we also can't continue to beat ourselves up about things we did in the past that we can't alter, right? Otherwise, it's just like you're holding yourself in this pattern, believing you can't grow and change. And if we, you know, we did harm our sister and we're, we're hurtful, don't we at least owe it to her to become a better version of ourselves to not do that to anyone else? I think we do. And in order to be able to do that, we have to let ourselves off the hook for that past, like past experiences and past uh, pain. It doesn't do anybody any good for us to continue beating ourselves up about it. So those are really my thoughts. I know that's a lot, but that inner child work and that understanding of where you're at and what was happening is going to be really key. And also offering the apology to your sister for the sake and the practice of doing it. Because it's important to tell people we're sorry, even if they're not going to hear it, even if they can't comprehend it, or even if they don't accept it, it doesn't mean that it's still not powerful. Shonda sneezed if you heard him. But um, it's still powerful for us, or it's important and powerful for us to put in the effort to do that, if that makes sense. Now, there's a comment on this says, as an add-on, I am the younger of two sisters, but my sister used to need my help with things or needed to talk to someone, and I'd ignore her a lot of the time. Now, as an adult, I feel so bad that I did that, especially knowing that she struggles with depression and low self-esteem. I think I need to stop feeling guilty because it doesn't help anyone, but how? I think a lot of what I talked about can already be applied But having a conversation with a sibling as adults can be incredibly healing. I've had multiples with my brother over the years um, 
one, I mean, it, it happened and then we talked about it, but my brother, if you guys didn't know, wasn't um, there for my dad's funeral and I was so hurt. Therefore, I was so angry, right? So protective secondary emotion. So pissed off. Now, it wasn't like my brother just didn't show up to my dad's funeral. In his defense, he was abroad uh, finishing up his time in the Peace Corps. And he and his wife had like, you know, had to wrap that up. And then they had a couple trips planned because they were already all the way over in Azerbaijan. So anyways, that also doesn't mean that him not showing up was oh didn't hurt me right I, it hurt me and i can still understand why he wasn't there and i can still be hurt and when he came back it was like 6 months later or something i was like angry and i, I we i not argued with him but i like a, approached him with it and said i just i i felt alone and that was really hurtful and he didn't think about that way and he was so apologetic and i think talking with our siblings as adults i know that's like a more recent thing but having conversations about it can be healing. It's hard. And I mean, I cried, right? But there's nothing wrong with that. And it also gave him an opportunity to see from my perspective and to meet me there and to be like, oh, I didn't realize I'm so sorry. And and if you're that person, like you, you know, stonewalled your sister. And also again, the inner child works healing because figuring out where you were coming from and what was happening can be kind of helpful. But having that conversation, apologizing and talking it through as the sibling, and I'm sure I've done stuff for, to my brother that, you know, I'd have to think about it, but it's easier to remember the one, the things that like affected me the most, which I know is so ego driven, but, um, you know, me being able to apologize for things I've done that hurt him and him being able to apologize for things that he's done to hurt me has really helped our relationship grow and continue. And so put aside that time and try to make, you know, make time for an opportunity to talk about it because that's what's really healing. And then I think the inner child work can allow you to let yourself off the hook. Yeah, it's hard. And we all go through these weird sibling relationships and navigating them as adults can be tricky, but I'm here to tell you that it, it is worth it. Set aside the time, try to figure out a way to have the conversations because, you know, we need to see things from their perspective too. We might be beating ourselves up when they don't even see it that way. And it's just important to get everyone's perspective, be able to really apologize wholeheartedly and then move forward because looking back or being held by a past experience, even though we're not doing it in the present, isn't isn't beneficial to anyone. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, for years I've had this fantasy of going missing or disappearing intentionally, just getting in my car, driving a thousand miles, leaving it in some parking lot and then just walking away. Over time, I learned that this is not actually illegal as long as you're an adult and you're not evading the prosecution of a crime. It's true. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
There are even whole websites that offer tips on how to do it correctly, like without faking your death or foul play. Like remember to destroy your phone and taking only cash, etc. Is this an example of a passive suicidal trait? I really don't want to die. I just want to start over or be somebody else. Do you have any thoughts on this or some advice for an adult who's actually considering it? What would you say if your patient told you they fantasized about this? Okay. No, it's not illegal to do this. However, I'm always curious more about the reason behind it. So you're saying that you just really want to like start over or be somebody else. What is it being you doesn't allow you to do? Because, okay, so a couple of things, because getting in your car and just leaving, just driving away, just like, bye, means that something, honestly, and I know it's not always this direct, but for many of my patients and even my friends over the years, who won't just like run away from their life. It, it has a, a reason and the reason is usually the fact that things feel overwhelming and we don't want to deal and so in a way, this is like an out. And I guess you could consider that a passive suicidal trait. I don't because there's no, you don't want to die. There's nothing associated with death in this. It's more the fact that you don't have any skills, any ways to cope with what's happening. And you feel like the only way to deal is just to run away. Now, unfortunately, and I don't know who has said this quote, but my therapist used to say it to me all the time, because I was definitely more of a runner like you. Um, she said, well, unfortunately, wherever you go, there you are. And let's just let that sink in because we technically can't be somebody else. We can grow and we can change. I've, I've talked in the past, and I think I even t- wrote about this in my first book, Are You Okay?, about how I'd, I'd like to think that if I saw people from high school that I no longer associate with or ex-boyfriends who were super toxic, that if they saw me on the street, they wouldn't even recognize me because I'd like shed so many skins of my past self. I'm technically not even the same person. You know, they don't know me anymore. And I think- that's more where I have placed my personal emphasis is like, I want to become such a better version of myself that, that they, I don't feel like they even know me anymore, you know, because they really don't. And so instead of thinking that I can run away from myself, because that's kind of what this sounds like, I want to run away from myself. I want to start over. Unfortunately, even if you were able to do this, you would still be you. And I know through psychological research, and you can you can read about this. Um, I guess it would be, what would we call it? I guess the terms you could search would be, you know, psychological, you can go to like PubMed and search patterns of behavior in people or relationship patterns or family dynamics. Now, the reason I bring that up is because we tend to still fall into those same patterns and same relationships. Like as someone who grew up in a very small town in Washington state, moved down to Malibu, California, didn't know anybody, I created similar relationships that I had back home because my therapeutic work was only just beginning. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to disappoint you or to tell you that you can't become a different version of yourself. But the thing that we have to know is that running away doesn't actually achieve that. Instead, it just means that we have to start over in a different way, like finding housing and jobs and, and meeting new people. But if we haven't changed ourselves We're going to create the same scenarios that are bothering us now. Like, for instance, this is like a totally random story that just popped in my head. I think I've even mentioned these people before, but there's like, it's a, in a very extended portion of my family, like a great, would it be like my great uncle or aunt or maybe like a fourth cousin? Anyway, one of their children's children, right? So, so removed from me, but technically still part of my family. They, this couple, 
got pregnant at 16. He was 17. She was 16. And they got married. And when she was 28, she just left. And it was super devastating, obviously, to the dad. And they had two children at the time. And she came back, like, I don't know, let's say six or seven years later, had a husband that was almost exactly the same as far as like personality and type as her first husband. And she was wanting to run away from that one too. And it was just ironic. It was almost, not to say hilarious, because like, I'm sure she was in pain and I wasn't a therapist back then. And I was like, this lady's crazy. That's what I thought as a kid. And it's such a perfect example of like, you can't just leave things. You'll go create the same problems again. And so anyway, those are just my thoughts. I know I'm kind of talking in a circle and I don't need to repeat myself anymore, but those are my thoughts. The, my advice is actually for you to dive into yourself and what is making you unhappy that you have control over because we have a lot of control over what we allow and don't allow in our lives. I know I had a video on TikTok, this is like probably a year ago now, where I said that we always have a choice We sometimes just don't want to make that choice because it would mean that we disappoint someone else or we're afraid we're going to hurt someone else's feelings or that choice requires a lot of courage or maybe it's all three of those things, right? So you have a choice. You can move house if you want to move where you're like Sean and I just relocated to Austin. Will we be here forever? I don't know. We can move to Colorado. We could move to Arizona. We could move to New Hampshire. We could go wherever. We work from home. I mean, we have Roxy girls, so we have to be able, you know, to consider her. However, we can do that. If I wanted to quit my job and stop making videos, I could do that. Would it be hard for me? Yeah, because I've made a commitment and I would feel really bad about it. And it, yeah, but I could do it, right? There's choices I can make. I can start relationships. I can end relationships. I can move. I can, I can change my life. I can change the way I interact with people. I can allow people in. I can not allow toxic people in. I can do all sorts of things but we often forget that we have all those choices. And I think getting into therapy or even just your own internal work, taking some opportunities to assess what's upsetting and what's making you want to run away and then see what what we have control over, what can we change? And again, not, not thinking, oh, that would be hard. I don't, I can't do that. No, be honest with yourself. Do you truly have a choice? And if you do, what steps can we take to make the choice that's best for us? Like when it comes to stopping, a, quitting a job or starting a new one. Can we start like beefing up our resume and getting ready for interviews and starting to look for a new job? Can we do that if that's what's upsetting? Can we take some family medical leave or a long vacation to kind of assess? You know, what what steps can we take to start moving it in the right direction? Not meaning we have to be impulsive, but we can start planning for sure. Because I think it's more about the running away from yourself. And unfortunately, everywhere we go, there we are. The only time that I would actually say just leaving is healthy and fine would be if we're leaving like an abusive relationship and essentially we have to just let go of everything that we knew because everybody's connected to that abusive partner. So that's that's really it. Okay. I hope that makes sense. And I'd love to talk about this more because I think I think more of us than than even maybe realize or admit think like that sometimes. Let's move on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie, this is kind of embarrassing to ask, but surely I'm not the only one who does this. You are not. Why do I pretend I'm having conversations with people who really aren't there? It's as if I'm actually having a back and forth conversation with another person. But in reality, I guess I'm just talking to myself. I'm aware that these conversations aren't real and no one is actually responding to me. But in the moment, it feels like I really am talking to someone. 
Sometimes it's conversations with people I know in my personal life. And sometimes it's celebrities or people that I've made up. Why might I do this? Could it be a way of coping with isolation due to trauma? It could. Maybe a social anxiety or neurodivergent thing to practice social skills? Definitely could be that too. Or a form of maladaptive daydreaming. It doesn't sound like that, though it feels like kind of different than that. It does to me too. I'd love any insights that you might have on why I do this and what the purpose is. Thank you. And I'm sorry if this makes absolutely no sense, LOL. And there's another comment on this, but um, it says, oh my God, yes. I guess this is sort of different, but I'm always having conversations with my therapist when she's not there. And I've been curious as to why. I say things I would never say in session, or if I'm not doing that, I'm just practicing my wording for when I tell her. Is this an anxiety thing or is it more than that? Okay. First portion of the question about why would you do this? A lot of times there can be many reasons. First, I've had tons of patients do this in the past, and it's a way to kind of practice what we want to say or process through something, almost like we're processing out loud. Some of us, like if you haven't, I'm trying to think of when I learned this, but it's essentially like each of us learns best in a different way. Some people learn through teaching others. Some people learn through reading it. Some people learn through uh, practicing it. Some, you know, there's all sorts of different reading it, writing it. I forget, I think I was like in sixth grade or something when we learned that we have strengths in certain ways that we all can learn best. But I want to say research back then, this would be like 1996 or something. um, They said that we all learn best from teaching other people because we have to understand it in and out to be able to talk it through. But anyways, long story short, I think what you're kind of doing is processing in the way that feels best for you, which is verbal, verbal processing. And so by having these conversations, I think you could potentially be allowing yourself an opportunity to speak your mind. Maybe you don't say what you want in in person because of anxiety or, you know, because of lack of self-confidence. Or maybe we um we do feel isolated and we don't feel like we're having enough conversation. So it's like our way of like talking ourselves through something that we would normally want to do with a friend or family member. It could be that. Either way, I think it's really a coping skill. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting you. As long as it's not impairing your ability or desire to to see people in real life. I don't want you doing this instead of in-person stuff. I want to make sure that you're still able to engage socially with other people. But other than that, there's I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but I think it is more about the fact that you're you're trying to find a way to cope and process. And this is this has been the easiest or the one that you were, you know, pulled towards um the most. And the isolation that you can feel, especially due to trauma, if it doesn't really feel safe to be out again, that's when I would say like we need to work in therapy to process our trauma so we can find ways to engage with people in real life. Um, and Or if it's social anxiety, again, I don't want it to be impairing you, but I think this is just a, a way that you're coping. And if you find it impairing you, then we need to get some help. And then when, when the reason that I said it's not maladaptive daydreaming is because you're not going into a different space and it's not it just doesn't sound like a daydream. It's just conversation. It's not like you've created a world that you go into, unless you have. But maladaptive daydreaming is like daydreaming that we do. We've created a different world um, and we hang out there instead of our real life. And it it sounds like it's more just like these conversations and that's it. So maybe I I just don't see, to me, it does not sound like that. Someone can disagree and you can let me know why in the comments. Um, It just doesn't quite feel like it fits that for me. Okay. 
So I think the purpose is more of that process or getting words out, being able to verbalize things that maybe in person we aren't able to. Um, but yeah, I think therapy will definitely really help. Now, the comment about it being um, saying that they have conversations with their therapist, this is incredibly common. And that can be because it's really difficult for us to open up in person, which is why I'm always talk- telling you to like, if, if they allow to like email, leave voicemails or write it down and bring it into your sessions. Because it's hard in person sometimes to say what we need to say. And I think you're probably doing this outside of therapy as a way to practice. It's like, no, I can say this. Okay. And it almost, because sometimes having the words come across our lips in real time with a person can be like too much to bear. And we're not ready to say it out loud, if that makes sense, with, with someone else present. But doing it on your own is almost like you're practicing for it. And so Again, if this isn't impairing you, if you're still able to engage in therapy and you're still doing the work, I think that's fine. And I think it could definitely be attached to your anxiety. And if you feel able, I would tell your therapist this is happening so that they can assist you, you know, more specifically for what what's going on for you. Okay. But you're definitely not alone. I also want everybody out there to know that it's very normal to talk to yourself. I know we act like that means you're psychotic or have some other issues, but it's very normal. Like if, even if Sean's here, but if I'm not with him in the same room and I'm doing something like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I have like these weird non-sentences that I say to myself to be like, okay, got that done. Okay, next. Like just these weird, like faux conversations. That's normal. There was a meme that was going around. I forget what, what exactly it said, but it said something to the effect of, oh yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. She said as she walked around her empty house. <laughs> And that's, that's me. I do that too. When I'm like doing things around the house, I'm like, okay, next I'll do you. And I like mumble to myself. So you're not crazy. It's just kind of part of our, the way that we process. You're probably more of a verbal person. That's how I am. Let's move on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie, why do I have such a strong push pull relationship with therapy? I have seen seven different therapists in the past two years and couldn't connect with any of them. Hmm. It's like the first couple of sessions, I want to tell them everything. And then on the third and fourth sessions, I don't want to talk to them anymore and want nothing to do with them. Interesting. After that, I'll stop going to therapy for a couple of months. But then I find myself really wanting to talk to a therapist again. I fantasize about how great it will be. So I reach back out, but then I dump them because I can't connect with them. And the cycle continues. I don't know what to do. Why do I keep pushing therapy away and then wanting it back? How can I fix this issue? I've been able to connect and open up with other people, for an example, a teacher and a dietitian. So why can't I connect to any therapist? It's hard to recover when my treatment is so uh, discontinuous. In an edit, they said, I wanted to add that I've tried to push through this before. I saw one therapist for close to three months. And as always, I liked her in the beginning and was open to talking. But then about a month in, it all switched. I wanted nothing to do with her anymore. Despite this, I kept going to therapy, but I ended up just lying to her every session before I eventually broke up with her. This seems to be a pattern. I really like the therapist in the beginning. I want to tell them everything and can't wait for the sessions. But then at some point I decide that I don't want to tell them anything. So I just lie or I decide that I don't actually need the therapist because I can solve my own issues or I can solve my issues myself. Okay. Great question. Now I'm very curious because the only thing all of this has in common is you, right? Pushing through isn't helping it. You need to be in therapy. So not seeing someone's not an option. We've been able to connect with other people, teacher, dietitian. I'm very, so my brain automatically goes to, is it because we overshare at the beginning? Do we have like a vulnerability hangover or feel, do we regret letting them in so much? Do we 
have some what I would call like disorganized attachment, meaning that growing up, our parents were really inconsistent. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We never knew if they were going to abuse us or be loving, if they'd be there or not. It was very unpredictable. Therefore, we can do that push-pull in our life in general. Now, I know it's specific to a therapist, so some, there's something about letting someone in that triggers this. And so I want you to spend a little time being curious where this comes from for you. I think it's something to do with letting people in. I think it's something to do with our attachment. I think our parents probably were very inconsistent. Um, and the fact that you want to tell them everything at the beginning, I'm curious if you do, and then you regret it. And that's when you shut down. That's why pushing through doesn't help because it's only further triggering you. And so part of me kind of wants to uh, obviously figure out where this is coming from. But the second, I want you not to overshare at the beginning, if that's what you're doing. I want you to tell them that you have this pattern up front. That's actually the sharing. I have this pattern where I overshare and then I disconnect and then I, I can't do therapy anymore. And then I move on to another person. Because that's not what you're doing isn't helping, right? What we've tried isn't working. So we have to act in a different way. And then I do want to give you a heads up that when you do this, it's going to feel really fucking uncomfortable. You're not going to like it because the pattern that we've been doing for our entire lives, this like overshare, shut down, cut them out, push away is what we're used to. And it probably feels normal and fine and comfortable. And so when we don't do that, when we don't overshare, we're going to want to so badly and it's going to feel like this relationship is fake and it's never going to work. We're going to want to push back or overly attach. Oh, they're too perfect. They're never going to like me. We're going to have all these weird thoughts pop up and this like these weird impulses and urges. I'm going to be super uncomfortable, but stay the course. Talk specifically about this issue, not your issues that you need to work on in therapy. This itself, because if we don't figure this out, then therapy isn't going to be able to work, right? And so if you aren't with a therapist now, it sounds like you're not, I would find someone that you, you know, again, someone you would pick. It might even, I might even encourage you to pick a therapist that would be different than what you normally are attracted to, because sometimes that can be part of it as well. That we purposely pick someone that, let's say, reminds us of our mother, and then we treat them like our mom, and they don't even get an opportunity to be a therapist because we come in projecting that. We act in the way that we would do, and then we cut them off and run away, and we've like repeated an unhealthy story to ourselves or narrative, right? And we're caught in that like unhealthy pattern. Um, so I might encourage you to find a therapist that's like a little off from that. So let's say we always find like an older female. What about a younger female? Or if it's a younger man, what about find an older man or vice versa or whatever? Um, yeah, because it's it's something about the attachment from childhood is my hypothesis. And we have this pattern. So we have to break it. And the only way to break it is for you not to overshare at the beginning and instead talk about this issue specifically and know that it's going to be uncomfortable. And But you don't, don't overshare at the beginning. I think it's in there that you're triggering yourself without realizing it. And then we were like, oh, you know too much. Bye-bye. But I could be wrong. But those are my thoughts. And there was a comment on this that as an Adam, 
I've been in therapy for a while. Um, for example, let's say I dissociate a lot, okay? Well, my therapist clearly explained this to me and why it happens and why I'm doing it and where it's coming from and that I have to ground myself. She gave me some grounding techniques or gave me some techniques, but then what? Grounding myself every day, every time? Is that the point of therapy? I know the root of my problems. I know what they psychologically mean, but then what? Does knowing the problem solve it? Educated myself trying to understand what I suffer from. Uh, oh, more. But what's the point of this? I ended up not wanting to go again because I don't see the point of doing so. I hope this makes sense. Thanks so much. Of course. Um, the reason you're going to have to ground yourself a lot. And when you said every day, every time, as much as you can do, yes. But especially in therapy, because it won't work if we're dissociated. And the reason that we do that is because grounding and not allowing for dissociation expands our resilient zone or what many people call the window of tolerance, meaning emotionally instable or emotionally triggering events, things that cause us to become emotionally unstable or dysregulated. We're able to weather them because we have more buffer to do so, meaning that shit can happen and we aren't going to dissociate or go into fight flight, right? So it keeps us in that resilient zone or that window of tolerance. And so as we ground over and over, we're like building that muscle and opening that window little by little. Now, that's not the entire point of therapy, but it might be a huge chunk of it for you because knowing our problem is part of the battle. It's a huge chunk and that's awesome, but it doesn't fix it. It'd be like me knowing, oh, all of my issues stem from a childhood trauma, but if I don't if I can't stay present enough to process that trauma, whether it's through talk therapy, EMDR, or somatic experience or whatever, if I can't stay present enough to actually process it, then knowing that isn't helpful because that doesn't change what happened or that doesn't help me manage the symptoms that came that come along with my PTSD. Do you know what I mean? It's a chunk of it and it helps us actually focus and then knowing what kind of therapy we need to get, which is incredibly beneficial. But it, it's like... um knowing a good analogy would be like, I know my leg hurts because it's broken, but I'm not going to go to an orthopedist to get it reset. I, I just, I just know, I know it's broken. That's why it hurts, <laughs> you know? And I know that sounds silly to say it that way, but that's essentially what this is. You're like, I know the problem, but I haven't, I can't take the action to fix it because I have other stuff that prevents me from doing it, you know? And that's why the grounding is going to be really important. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am, I hope you're doing well. It says, regarding journaling, is it more used to write things down in the moment or is there value in going back and rereading it at some point? Great question. I've been journaling pretty regularly for the past year and I wanna go back through it and read it, but I'm finding myself very hesitant to do so. Do you have any tips about around reviewing a journal? I imagine looking for patterns is important, but is there anything else to tease out? Many things. Okay. Great question. Now, journaling has, there's no rhyme or reason. We can bullet point out some things as they happen in the moment, thoughts we have, worries, concerns. We can vent. Um, we can also just make it like some things we're grateful for. Like I've talked about in the past, you can write down like two things you're grateful for, two things you're working on, and two things um, you're looking forward to. And that can be your journal, and that's fine. But there is a great benefit to going back and reading it. And the main reason I have my patients do that is when they feel like they haven't made any progress. Now, I don't usually recommend, not that it's necessarily bad, but it can be really triggering to read in a journal, like way back all the way, like cover to cover kind of. 
but I will have patients like, hey, go back six months and read me an entry or two. And what we're looking for is essentially the change. Because we can feel like all of a sudden when, you know, we, I don't know, hit a roadblock or life just kind of isn't improving at this, the pace that it used to be. We can think I'm not doing any better. Everything is shit. I'm so bad. I'm super depressed. This isn't, my eating disorder is taking over. We can have all these thoughts of like self-sabotaging, self-deprecating, putting ourselves down and not believing we've made any progress in therapy. Now, for my patients who journal, I'm like, hey, go back and read some of your entries from six months ago. But my patients who don't, I go back in my own notes and I'm like, hey, let's look back at January of this year. And it looks like back then we were working on this. Do you remember that? Oh my God. And then you can see because you can actually feel the progress because you're not that person anymore, you know? And so that's really the value is to help see progress. Now we could use it if we're not in therapy and we just journal because it's something that we like to do. Like I, I used to do when I was younger. Um, we can look for those patterns, but it, I encourage you to be acutely aware of whether doing it is helpful or not, because it can be too, like I said, to be too triggering, can like emotionally be too dysregulating that it's hard for us to actually do it and not have it hurt us later, meaning throw us off our game for the rest of the day or the week or have us fixated on something that happened in the past. Just be aware of that because I'm always... That's why I don't usually tell my patients just to read it all the way through. I want them to look for the growth and that's it. Then be like, yay, and keep moving forward. But if you're trying to look for a pattern in a relationship or a pattern in yourself and the way that you interact with people, you could do that. And that could be beneficial because that could help us work on what we want, you know, want for the future, like change that we want to make. So yeah. Okay. There was a comment on this that said, thank you for asking this. I would also be interested in knowing as far as a gratitude journal as a coping me method for depression, is there a best time of day to make an entry? Gratitude, practicing gratitude, I know it's like toxic positivity sounding, but just looking for some things that are positive to be grateful for out in our environment is incredibly healing and mood and life changing because it's essentially forcing our brain to have like confirmation bias for good things instead of bad things, which it's kind of primed to look for bad things, right? Our nervous system is primed to look and seek out threat because then if it knows the threat, it can manage it. And so we have to kind of force it to not do that and to look for the positives. So that's why it's really helpful. Best time of day. I always say morning or evening, right before bed or when we first wake up. And the reason for that is I think it's easier for us to reflect and there's less chances for intrusion into our space as we're trying to focus or any kind of distractions. It's But you'd have to pick for you. There isn't really a best time of day. And maybe there is some research to this. I haven't read it. If there is, I know that the goal is usually just to have consistency. And so if, if doing it in the morning, you find helps you set the stage, you might try different times and see what feels best for you. Because I was an evening journaler when I was doing it every day. It was always in the evening. Um, but I, a lot of my patients like to do the gratitude stuff first thing in the morning because it sets the stage for their whole day. But you try it out and see which feels the best for you. And that's what I would stick with. Okay. Moving on to question number six. It says, hello, Katie. Is it possible to know you're in denial and yet you still don't want to believe the truth? I'm trying to come to terms with being emotionally neglected by my parents, but the part I'm struggling with is the acceptance that it happened. I know it sounds like a contradiction because I can name the part, the emotional neglect. I'm technically in denial about, but there are two sides to a story and I can see why my parents did what they did. 
Also, I know if I could fully accept that it happened and that my parents should have treated me better, I would, um, it would make me feel anger towards them. And I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know if I'm hanging on to the fact that I think it's my fault because I know if I was better, meaning better behaved, then they would have, wouldn't have reacted the way that they did. Surely I need to accept that my actions have consequences. Thanks for all that you do. And sorry, I forgot to add, since my parents didn't help me and show me how to regulate or deal with my emotions, I struggle to deal with them. I have BPD, which for anybody who doesn't know, stands for borderline personality disorder. I also feel anger at the fact that I need to reparent myself and do inner child work when I really don't want to. Hmm. I don't want to have to live my life dealing with my past. This is a great question. And I have a lot of thoughts as per usual. There's so much tangled up in this. Going back to what I said earlier about being able to hold two things at the same time, it is possible to be mad at our parents for the way that they treated us and the effect that it had on us and simultaneously be like, I understand why they did it and I love them anyways. Those can exist. I know people like to make us think that we you have to hate fully or love fully. Life is all gray. I think this is the urge to have black and white thinking or black and white beliefs about our family and our upbringing. I'm here to tell you that you could be emotionally neglected and be upset and be angry and be frustrated with the fact that now you have all this shit to deal with because they did this to you, but then also understand and be like, I still love my parents and I know they did their best, even though their best was painful. But you can have those two happening at the same time. I know it's difficult, especially those of us who d- struggle with dysregulation because the the hating of like, or the feeling bad and the the anger that we're experiencing and the upset can be really dysregulating as well as then trying to like love them. We're like, ah, it's that urge to be black and white. It's that splitting behavior in BPD where people are seen as all good or all bad. And they're here to tell you that your parents did their best. There's some good in them. That's why you love them, but they were emotionally neglectful and it left you devastated with a lot of different issues. And so we can be like, hey, I love the good parts of them, but I also don't like the other parts. And it I know that that can be tricky, but that's something that I would have you work on in therapy and talk about. And I know you're like, I don't want to live my life, you know, dealing with the past. You don't have to live your life dealing with the past, but there is going to be a chunk of time right now where you're going to want to get in touch with younger you in some fashion so that you can acknowledge and validate the pain that you felt and also acknowledge the love you feel for your parents and getting in touch with you at that time can give you some compassion for your situation because what I hear throughout this whole question is just shame. Like it's my fault. I should have behaved better. I'm something's wrong with me and that's why they treated me this way. That's trauma. Shame is born out of trauma because we can't make sense of it, right? There are parents that are supposed to love us. And so the best thing we can do is say, well, you know, they're my parents. They did the best they could. I must've done something wrong. That's the only way we can make that make sense. But I'm here to tell you, there is no sense to be made out of abuse. It doesn't make sense. And I know that that's hard for us to acknowledge. It's hard for us to accept. But if we can, if we can work and to do some of that inner child work, to get back in touch with younger you, to be able to acknowledge what you felt at that time and how limited you felt your options were maybe, or how painful the neglect was, and also how much you loved them and how much you wanted them around and wanted to be, you know, given more attention and support. We can be able to kind of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but I guess it's just processing that past pain because this kind of uh, denial or 
uh, it's almost like repression. Like we're, we're stuffing our anger down. We're stuffing our pain down. We're pretending it doesn't exist because we don't think that we can have pain and be angry and still love our parents. I'm here to tell you that no one's parent is perfect. No person is perfect, right? And it, I can be upset personally with the fact that like my family never really argued in front of me that much. Therefore, uh, I never knew how to have disagreements without blowing it way out of proportion. And that took me all of my 20s to try to figure out. And Sean was so patient. God damn, that cost me a lot of time, emotional time, emotional pain, super frustrating. But I know that it only was born out of, you know, my mom and dad's own emotional and uh, I, I guess, I don't want to call it inadequacy, but that's what my brain went to, which I guess probably says something about it. But it's like their lack of emotional intelligence. That's where that came from. Their discomfort with conflict created that same feeling in me. Now, does that mean that I can't be mad at them for that? No. And I'll still sometimes tell my mom, I'm like, God damn, if you guys had just done that, I wouldn't have had this. She's like, I know, because she's been in therapy too now, which I guess also allows me to be like, I love you and I know you're trying your best, but man, your best kind of sucked in that realm. And it does take practice and it's like a new muscle to be able to love and also be hurt. But I feel like that is a lesson we all have to learn in relationships because again, no one's perfect. And I know your BPD is like splitting. It's black and white. It's like you're either all good or you're all bad. No one is all good or all bad. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe like a serial killer is all bad, but that people are a mix of both. We have good and bad traits, things that are going to upset others and things that aren't. The important part is that we work through it. We communicate with each other and we try to do better next time. Your parents can't go back in time and undo what they did, but they can be better now. Hopefully they're kinder to you now. And you can't go back in time and undo that either, but you can get in touch with younger you and at least have them feel heard and understood and offer them some of the love that they so desperately need so that we don't have to keep beating ourselves up with it. Those are my thoughts. Being in denial about our parents' lack of whatever it is or our parents' shortcomings is very normal but it's incredibly healing for us and our future relationships to at least acknowledge it and say, you know what? I can love them. And I can also feel like they did kind of a shitty job, right? I know it's hard, but you'll get there, especially with that BPD. I think DBT and that emotion regulation as well as some interpersonal effectiveness skills will come in handy. Okay. There's a comment on this. Actually, it looks like two. It says, adding to the, den- the denial part, I still can't accept the fact that my grandparents passed away. It's been a few months and I just can't. Something inside me still believes that they're there. This is stopping and grieving. Oh, this is stopping the grieving process because I just can't get this fact. I don't know what to do since I'm fully aware that they're gone, yet I can't accept it. And I feel like I'm wasting time trying to get this when I can just live, uh, when I can just live without thinking about this. You get me? I get you. Unfortunately, this is grief and grief is complicated and it can be really difficult for us to admit to ourselves and to others that they're not there. And it's also kind of just a natural part of it to forget. I even sometimes, like my grandma passed away, what is this, is September now and she passed away in January. I will still randomly in a weekday be like, oh, I should give her a call, right? Because she'd been in my life my whole life and now she's not. So the fact that your grandparents aren't here, I think it's very normal. They've been there your whole life. It takes that adjustment. And I encourage you when you have those thoughts of like, 
they're still here. I could go visit them or I should call them or whatever. I don't know how it appears for you. I'm just speaking personally. So when that comes up, it's okay to take a minute and cry if you need to. But what I encourage you not to do is don't shame yourself for it. Don't blame yourself. Don't feel stupid or embarrassed. It's kind of part of that process. For years after my dad passed away, even just the other day, I told Sean, I'm really bummed my dad never really got to know you and didn't get to see what we've created. Like, it's really sad to me. Um, And it's okay. Not that that's like the same as me not knowing he's not here, but I think it's important to acknowledge those moments and let those feelings be because grief is not, I know we like to think it has a beginning, a middle and an end because it helps us like compartmentalize it and think that it's going to get better. And it does get better, but it doesn't go away because grief is really just the fact that love existed. We miss someone. We're grieving them. And as humans, we're primed for connection. So when those connections are taken or you know, we feel like they're they were stolen from us, we're gonna be sad about that. And it's okay. And so instead of feeling like I need to move past it, I need to get through this denial part, denial is part of the grief process. And I think my thought was really the more you fight it, the longer it's gonna hang around. And so, you know, while you're going through this, it's okay to be angry, it's okay to be frustrated, it's okay to um to wish they were there and to have those thoughts. And when that happens, let yourself feel it instead of get angry at the fact that you're in that space. Okay. And I'm sorry for your loss. Okay. Another comment says, since 2017, I cut my mom off from my life and my sister, I cut off even sooner. My mom can't be giving you advice or she can be giving you advice. Sorry, but it sounds more than a critique that didn't help at all. And it was more like, I told you so. Oh God. She's controlling and incredibly mean I can't reason with her and she can't and she can be really insecure. She tries to fix things with money. A favor was more of a reminder how a sacrifice, oh how much of a sacrifice it was for her to do it. And I need her to do I need to do her a favor because she did one for me. Oh, it's like keeping a you cannot keep score in relationships of what you've given versus what you've got. That's always going to lead to toxicity. She was overprotective and I couldn't go anywhere without her permission even though I was in my 20s. I was afraid of her. She hurt me so much. That year that we parted and parted our ways, she told me that I owe her from the moment I was born until now. God damn. Those words hurt me so deeply. I decided not to have more of her. I'm, pr- I'm proud of you. Unfortunately, through the years, she created a codependent and highly emotional adult. And now I'm in my 50s and I live alone, but she's created... But because of this, I've become very anxious, fearful, and in- an insecure adult that can't navigate this world without double or triple questioning myself. And life feels very scary because she wouldn't let you do things on your own. I feel like a scared child. Do you have any advice? Thanks. That inner child work and trauma work is going to be incredibly healing. I have an inner child workshop. You can access it on my website. Um, I did the live versions, but we recorded those and you can access them now. I highly encourage you to do that. Um, if you're working with a therapist, tell them you'd like to do some inner child work and and talk through some of this trauma because essentially what happened to you is because your mom was overprotective. That's why things can go both ways. We talk about emotional neglect, but helicopter parents are just as toxic and just as traumatizing because essentially what that creates in us is this inability to trust our own instincts. That's why you're double, triple, question, triple questioning yourself before you make a decision. Sorry, I stuttered there. Wow, what a doozy. Um, but it's because you were never given an opportunity to make a decision, trust your gut and go with it and see that it was fine. We never had that chance. You never got to test out and practice being independent. Like when most people did when they had healthy parents, 
in our teens and early 20s where we get to kind of do things and like mess up or whatever and like push back. I'm not coming home. You said midnight. I'm coming home at 1230. The, the pushing of boundaries and the stretching of it is like, I can be independent. I can trust my gut. I'm okay. I made it back. And I know parents hate this. And as someone who is of the age that could be that parent, I would hate that. But I also understand it to be a really healthy part of development because we can't protect our children from everything, even though your mom, it sounds like she wanted to, that actually creates what you're talking about, anxious, fearful, and insecure because we never had the opportunity to do things on our own. And so I think that inner child work is going to be incredibly beneficial. And we're going to have to slowly kind of through what I would call like a a confidence building exposure therapy make decisions and trust our gut a little bit and go out and try it and come back and feel okay, right? And have some you know ways to soothe us so that we don't overwhelm. But that will be the, the path to healing for you, okay? Let's move on to question number seven. It says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, how do I stop invalidating my little t-, t traumas, as you call them? I had a lot of things happen to me over my lifetime that I would consider smaller traumas, if anything. For example, my father was quite abusive, but he left when I was very young, and so I didn't see him often. My mother was or is an addict, but she still took care of us quite well, at least until we were teenagers. A lot of other stuff happened, but none of it was that bad. Listen to that minimization. And I struggle for a long time to understand why I got sick. I have an eating disorder, OCD, and depression. My therapist thinks it has to do with all these things that happen, but I have a hard time taking it seriously because it seems to me that it is just the difficult things in life everybody has to deal with. That's not true. Can such minor things really be the reason for my mental illness? And how do I start processing all of it if I can't even take it seriously? Thanks for all that you do. Now, I know I'm harping on inner child work, and it's probably because I read a ton of research and books about it and really prepared for that workshop. But in the case of this, I know I can tell you like, people don't go through that. You went through a lot. That had to be traumatizing. That's not going to make this better, I don't think. Me telling you that, hey, I'm telling you that. I know at least through my past with my patients, they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and then they just like push it off. We can't accept it. It's like when I give my patients compliments, they're like, no. So I want you to do an exercise with me. I want you to go back in your head, maybe get a photo of yourself. The youngest you can recall, usually were eight or 10, sometimes later, because you had some trauma. I know you don't believe it, but you had a lot of trauma. Having an an addict as a parent, have you ever gone to Al-Anon? I cannot recommend it enough. There's going to be struggles, you know, with codependency and uh, enmeshment, struggle with boundaries. I don't know if you're a people pleaser or not, or parentified child, you could be. These are all things I'd want to, like down the line, we can work through. But for right now, and part of this, like to prevent us from continuing to invalidate what happened, I want you to go back. If there's a memory that sticks out, if you have one of these, you know, little T traumas that you can recall, you've, you've named quite a few things here already. Can you tell me in detail what it felt like for you at that age? I'd like you to maybe journal it out or talk with your therapist about it because looking at a photo of ourselves at that age, or even being around a child that's that age, if we have our own children or our friends have children, let's say they have a child that's six years old and we're like, oh my God, at six years old. I remember my mom, like I found her drunk and passed out on the couch and I tried to wake her and I thought she might've died. That happens to children who have addic- like parents that are addicts. I had, I remember making, um, many of you have told me, you know, I remember making all the lunches for me and my siblings and making sure we got up and ready for school and out to the bus. And, you know, no, no parent was doing that for you. 
think about these things. And instead of thinking about it from your perspective as an adult, because as an adult, we're like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I get up and do shit for myself all the time. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal when you're a child. It's terrifying. It's frightening. It's a lot of responsibility to place on a small child to think, oh, I've got to get myself up and I've got to get all ready. And being around a child that age or looking at a photo of a child that age, taking yourself back there in your mind as much as you can, you'll realize just how little that is and how inappropriate that is, how neglectful that is. And I'm obviously making up situations. I don't know what what experiences you had, but consider that because you know your mom took care of you quite well. What are the things that she couldn't do? Did you ever find her drunk or high or passed out or or see something scary happen with her? Were you worried about her safety? Did you like put her to bed? Did you make her food? Did you put blankets over her when she was, you know, think about that. And then think about it from that perspective. It's very scary for a child. And I think going back in your mind to that age could maybe help with this validation because as an adult, we can struggle to have compassion for little us because we're like, we have so many more resources now, such a greater understanding of the world. We forget how limited it was for us as a kid, okay? And I think the eating disorder, OCD, depression, I mean, the eating disorder right away, when I was even reading this, I was like, you're lucky you don't have an eating disorder or an addiction yourself. It's the lack of control in your life. Everything felt wildly out of control. What are you going to control? You're going to control yourself. Hello, anxiety and OCD. Hello, eating disorder. I'm going to control my body. I can do this the way I want. And then depression, because it is sad for us to recognize that our parents aren't amazing, don't know everything, can't do everything, have limitations, um, are an addict. That can be like a secret that we kept for a long time. Children who have addicts as parents are embarrassed by it, right? And that could also mean that maybe we didn't have uh, food all the time or the lights got cut out and that's traumatizing. That's traumatic. Again, um, yeah. So of course, eating disorder, OCD, depression, I can see where those would all tie in. I hope that that helps. Going back in time a little bit in our brain and being able to recognize what it was like for a child that age and knowing that that was us, that can usually help with this process and to prevent us from continuing to invalidate us, okay? Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hey, Katie, how do I get to the root of my issues? Hmm. I feel like I'm so caught up in running away by using maladaptive coping skills like anorexia, overexercise, suicidality, et cetera, that I don't even know what I'm trying to cope with. I do know that there's more emotional pain when I reduce my disordered behaviors, yes, but I don't know what the cause of all of this is. I've been struggling with anorexia and depression for 13 years and I'm now 24. My therapist told me to stop running away and have a look, but I don't know how. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. And thank you so, so much for this podcast and all of your work. Of course, of course. I'm glad I could be here. Now, I have a couple of thoughts and I'm afraid you're not going to like this answer. When we struggle to not use our maladaptive coping skills in our regular life, so we're unable to ever put those down in order to figure out what is going on, my brain jumps to, we're going to need a higher level of care. Now, I know that sucks, but there's leave we can take from jobs, whether it's family medical leave, whether it's taking a break in school, you can put things on pause and not lose your place. I'm not sure, you know, like where you're at in your life. I don't want to make any assumptions, 
but even a day program. If you have a job, like back when I was 24, I guess I was just out of grad school, but I also worked as like a waitress. And so maybe you work in the evenings and you go to the day program during the day. We're going to need to get you more support because what's happening is you're not able to reduce your disordered behaviors enough to even see what's going on because it's too uncomfortable, which means that we need other exercises and support in person to help us manage that because the the tools and the resources we have isn't enough. Now you could try with your therapist to boost or increase the number of healthy behaviors that we have. But in my experience, when the when we have too many and we struggle to put them down ever, and we just tickle, like tickle, I'm gonna say toggle. Jesus Christ, Katie. It's it's been a, I'm, I'm recording this after a three-day weekend. Maybe my mouth just needs to warm up. Um but if we can't put them down ever, or we don't have the, the ability, and be honest with yourself, if you don't have the ability to, instead of Im- immediately impulsively using an unhealthy coping skill, if we can't use a healthy one instead, or even have the, the time to even think about it, we're going to need more support. There's nothing wrong with it. I worked in an eating disorder treatment center, multiple eating disorder treatment centers for years, and all different sorts of people need that support. And there's no judgment. I, I worked in a day program. I worked PHP. I worked IOP. I've worked, um, you know, in the hospital system. There are all of those different levels of treatment because everybody has different needs and there's no judgment around it. But the fact that we feel like we can't even get out of this cycle enough to even see straight or to know what the root is, right? If we can't do that, then we get more support so that we can. And you can tell your therapist, you know, I can't do this. I need more tools or more resources. I have impulse logs. I talk about them in my book, Traumatized. Um, I also have talked about them in videos and there's, you can go to selfinjury.com and uh, they talk about impulse logs there as well. You can use that to slow down this knee-jerk reaction that you're having. That could be a way to, to prevent yourself from going straight into a maladaptive coping skill. But if if that's not enough, we're going to need more support and that's okay. And that's honestly, so many times that's what it takes in order to get to the root because otherwise we're just trading in uh, unhealthy coping skills, right? That's like my patients would go from addiction to eating disorder to self-injury and back and forth and they just swip swap them. And it would be like, oh, I'm not self-injuring. And I'd be like, well, how often are you drinking? And often we're, you know, using those other maladaptive coping skills and just swip swapping them. And so- Anyway, I know I'm talking in circles again, but just getting extra support is what's going to really help. And I know it's hard and I know we want to say, oh, I can just do it on my own. I'll just do it. It's there for a reason. It's okay to use it. Okay. And let's move on to question number nine. The final question. It says, hi, Katie. I really hope you see this message. One of your answers prompted me to ask a question. I'm struggling with feeling like I've tried everything and feeling like I have no choice left but to end things. I've been inpatient multiple times. I've done multiple IOPs and partials. I've tried so many meds. I've been in regular therapy for years, and I currently have added a second therapist for extra support. I've done DBT on a weekly basis for a couple of years. What left is there to do? I'm still miserable and scared that I'm going to run out of options and eventually act on my thoughts. I really, I picked this question. First of all, I just did the random. But I picked this one because I think a lot of us can feel this way. Like we've tried everything. Nothing's helping. I've heard from a lot of people that like, oh, I've tried all these medications. Nothing's helping. 
there are a lot of alternative treatments. I know it's fucking exhausting. I'm not here to pretend that it's going to be easy. You already know it's not easy. You've already tried IOPs and partials. Part of me just feels like we haven't found the right fit when it comes to the treatment modalities. Or possibly, I've had this with some of my patients, I'm not calling you out, I'm just putting this out there. Sometimes we're not ready to get better. And I don't mean that in a hurtful way that like you're not trying hard enough or anything like that. I'm just saying that sometimes we're really deep down not willing to do the work and not ready to do the work. And I'm going to name a couple of random things that I've found to be really helpful for my patients who feel like I keep trying things and it's not getting better. Okay. Now, number one is different types of medications. And I'm not, I'm not not a psychiatrist. I can't tell you what type of medication to try, but medication can be incredibly beneficial. And there's tons of amazing research around what I would call alternative therapies, things like psilocybin, um, MDMA, ketamine, there's a, I know that those are usually thought of as like street drugs or things that aren't good for us, but properly dosed with a doctor, they can be life-changing. So there's that. I also have a lot of uh, research that I read th- about trauma treatment and something called stellate ganglion block or SGB. They found that to be incredibly beneficial for people with trauma. Um, also DBT isn't the always, doesn't always work for everybody. I know I talk about it a lot cause I think it's, imbe- it's like incredibly beneficial, but just like anything, it's not a hundred percent, right? Some people are going to like it. Other people aren't. And so if you find yourself in that bucket where you don't like it, I find somatic experiencing is another great option for those people who would normally, you know, go towards DBT because sometimes we're so cut off from our bodies that in re-engaging with it can be healing. Another um, is schema therapy, which essentially is like where we have different schemas within ourselves, like different parts of ourselves. And we can try to, and again, I don't do this in my practices, which is why it's a very limited description, but it's another way to get in touch with different parts of ourselves and to work on those relationships and understand why those different schemas exist. And I'm just, these are just a couple of the things that I'm thinking of. Also, I found a lot of, uh, not, I mean, not a hundred percent, but I found a lot of success having my patients do like the DNA swab and send it off to find what medications would be the most beneficial for them. But so I just want you to consider other options. There's also vagus nerve stimulation or FVNS, um, especially if we were feeling incredibly suicidal. That's been life changing for a few patients that I've seen over the years. There was one woman in particular when I worked in the hospital, it was like the thing that saved her life. So ask about these options. Talk to people in your area to see what else is available. Talk to your therapist and mention, you know, you're feeling really helpless and hopeless and you talk to this this random therapist online, they mention these things, what's available in your area and see what you can do because sometimes the traditional routes of the talk therapy just isn't doesn't work for us. I don't know if you recall this, but back when I was doing research for my book, Traumatized, I found that only 40% of people are helped with talk therapy. 40%. I know that's a big number, but that means 60% of us aren't. And so don't think that this is the only way. These There are there can be things that we can do, other types of treatment, maybe EMDR is something you haven't tried yet. I would encourage you to explore other treatment modalities and see what could benefit you that way. Because trust me, with the right help, it can and will get better. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for watching. If you're watching this on YouTube, please share this podcast. That really, really helps. I love you all and I'll see you again next week. Okay, bye.